This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning, sports fans. Good morning, business fans. And good morning, analytics fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. We're here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics, and some combination of myself, Adi, Kate Massey, and Shane Jensen are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. And thanks to our uh, associate producer and sound engineer, Danielle Bruno, we're also on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all kinds of other places. So please, there's lots of opportunities to listen to us here on Wharton Moneyball. And this is one of those rare opportunities for you, the sports fan, to get engaged with the show and call into the show. We all know for we've been on for four years. This is a call-in show here on Wharton Moneyball. Um, I'm here this morning with Adi Weiner for the first hour of the show, and then I'm alone. And so this is an opportunity for you, the fan, to, if you want, co-host with me, bring up topics with me, talk with me about any topics in sports, business, and analytics. So if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And, of course, for those people, while I have not been physically in the studio, I have been on Twitter quite a bit at at WMoneyBall. So that's at WMoneyBall. So, Adi, first of all, it's good to see you. How you been? It's very good to see you. I've been very well. I was I was in the studio by, well, I was the only one of the four of us in the, in the studio last time. I know you were with your I, our former doctoral student, your Blake student, McShane. Blake McShane. I brought him in, and uh, we did some over-unders with Dan Loney. We had a great time. Well, we're back. Me and you are back. And, and so uh, expect a good time today. We, we got lots and lots of topics to talk about. And so for those people that know our show well, what we always like to do in the first half hour is to talk about what's caught our eye in sports. Absolutely. And um, so obviously I do a lot of prep for the show. And so there are six different sports, Adi, that have caught my eye right now. As you know, there could be more. We could talk about any sport. <laughs> Uh, I've been watching a lot. There's been a lot. It's funny. We had a, a little bit of a lull. Two weeks ago, felt like we were not quite in anything. And now things have heated up again. Now things have heated up. So here are the six sports. And of course, since I'm sitting in the host chair this morning, I'll let you pick which of the ah. six you would like. So we could start with tennis. Would be good. Tennis would be nice. Soccer. A lot going on. We could talk about, obviously, our favorite sport, baseball. We could talk about the NBA. We could talk about golf. And then, of course, a sport which only really flares up, if you'd like, bubbles up to the gastrointestinal <laughs> surface once a year is the WFOCE, the World Federation of Competitive Eating. Of course, a week ago today was the hot dog eating contest. So, Adi, tennis, soccer, baseball, NBA, golf, or WFOCE. Okay, well, here's my thinking. We're going to definitely right. do baseball at the, at the half hour when you're going to do Rick soccer. Peter, and Rick Peterson will be joining us for our call to the bullpen. Which should segment. be great. We have, and I can, you, as you know, you and I can talk baseball endlessly. We have have uh, soccer at nine o'clock. So, we do with Omar uh, so Chowdhury. We, we do, and and those two sports are wonderful. I definitely want to get to them, but I'm going to put them slow, lower down the list. I'm not quite ready to talk basketball. It seems a little early, and uh, tennis is is wonderful. But here's the opportunity of the of the of the year. The the one ten minute or five minute segment we'll get in the entire year. Let's talk about the professional eating. What okay. do you think? Okay, so <laughs> let me let me tell you what caught my eye about the event, and then I have a more general statistics question for you about the event and about what I'll call predictability. But let's start with the event. 
Let me just repeat for everybody here on the show how it works. For those of you that aren't WFOCE and Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest fans, um, it's an eating competition that takes place every year at July on July 4th at noon um, in Coney Island, New York, which is where Nathan's, the famous hot dog uh, company, was started. Um, it's a 10-minute competition. Uh, a bunch of eaters, roughly in the 20 range, I think this year there were 21, have to eat as many hot dogs and buns as they can in 10 minutes. That's the competition. There's no, you know, that's it. You have, whoever eats the most hot dogs and buns, there's no, I feel like there's no beauty contest, there's no written test. It's how many hot dogs and buns can you eat. And for those people that don't know, um, matter of fact, he's been a guest of our show before here he on the air. Joey Chestnut is actually, by any measure, the greatest championati in any sport of all time. He is the 11-time now mustard belt champion. As we all know, Bill Russell, 10 NBA championships. Maybe you call him the GOAT in, in football. Tom Brady, five NBA championships. We could go to baseball. Yogi Berra, 10 titles with the Yankees. Joey Chestnut, 11 mustard belts. Now, just to recap the event, he won this year. He won with 74 hot dogs, which set an all-time record. So that was the all-time record. And Adi, that's going to get some of my statistics questions yep. for you. Um, and he won by a discrepancy of about 10 hot dogs. The second-place person ate 64 hot dogs. So here are my statistics questions for you. So the first one is, why is one person so able to dominate a sport. So I just want I want you to think not just WFOCE, but why have we had the great players? Like, why essentially has Serena Williams really been un yep. unbeatable in tennis? Why have, you know, I don't know, the Golden... What, what would you what would you Would you say LeBron is a do dominated? I'm not well, sure. He's, I mean, we know he's three and six in the finals, but he's gone to nine straight, right. eight and, straight, and we know eight he straight went to the Lakers, and immediately they went from being distant out... You know, super long shots to, yeah, to fact, potential favorites. The reason I love asking you this question is, as a statistician, you I know, as, and as also trained originally as a probabilist, you study what I'll call extremum. Matter yeah, of fact, it's part of what probabilists do, and it's like, what's the distribution of the maximum of a set of events? Or a set, so, how are we getting it that we have one person, if we think of the right tail of the distribution, that appears to be so far beyond? the right tail of the distribution usually, of all the other people. Usually this happens because someone invents something wholly new. So the first instance in my mind is the, is the great Babe Ruth who figured out that home runs are easily done and should be pursued, and that completely changed baseball. Or even in WFOCE, the first great champion was Takara Kobayashi. Uh, absolutely. Who invented a new method yeah. to eat the hot dogs and buns. You dip them in the water. You eat them. You, you separate the hot no, Hey. <laughs> We're getting Fos a whole lesson. No, uh, Fosbury, the Fosbury, Dick Fosbury. Dick Fosbury, he figured out something new. The, the two-handed backhand in tennis. These were enormous innovations that changed the way the game is actually played. But we played. agree, that's not an explanation for, for Joey, Joey Chestnut. Chestnut. It's not, but, because Kobayashi was the one who made the innovation. Chestnut just seems to exist outside the boundaries. But so how does this happen? Uh, you know what? This is an eating competition, and, and it might have slightly different formulations than, than uh, other sports. Perhaps there isn't anyone willing to put in the effort. Perhaps He's just physically um, um, created differently from other people. I don't know. Um, one thing, maybe we're not measuring it properly. One of the interesting things about the hot dog competition is what's the right way to measure distance from your competitor? Well, that was what I was going to ask so, you. So well, I, I mentioned one, which yeah. is what's the exceedance the between exceedance. the largest and the second largest? In this case, 10. It was 10 hot dogs, 74-64. Or another way to view it is how long would – this is another way I was thinking about during the competition – 
how long a handicap would you have to give Joey Chestnut so he wouldn't win? Well, he was at 64 hot dogs before the end of the ninth minute. So if you gave him nine minutes and everyone else ten minutes, he still would right. have won the competition. So the real issue is how do you measure it? And one of the things this is actually something that matters a lot is um, – is when you're looking for extreme, what's the unit that you're going to look at? And the hot dog eating contest, this applies to really any anything that's measured as a rate. Are you going to re- measure it as hot dogs per minute, which is the, the way that they count the victory? Yep. Or do you want to measure it as seconds per hot dog? They're, they're inverse inverses of each other. They, they're, they're monotonic, and, and so you don't get a different winner by calculating this way. But the reason why it matters is that if you look at Kobayashi in hot dogs per minute, which is the way they judge it, he is just a little higher than Kobayashi. So he's just the next step up from greatness. Well, let's let me just let's be clear for our fans out here. If he eats even a half a hot dog extra per minute, a half a hot dog extra per minute, using that inversion, in ten minutes he eats five more. That's right. So you say, wow, he won by five. But if I told you Kobayashi is at seven a minute and Chestnut's at 7.5, you're like, oh, that doesn't seem so much. That's right. But it leads to five it, extra it hot dogs. So what's interesting is that if you look at the, actually the graph of the history, and I, I shout out to to uh, a, a podcaster, uh, not a podcaster, a Twitter, um, Luke Benz, who, who's a Yale uh, student, and he actually put all this data up on hot dog competitions. I, I actually uh, was reading it on 538. So what one of the things that's interesting is if you look at it seconds per hot dog, it looks like that Kobayashi is uh, distant behind um, uh, Joey Chestnut in terms of their accomplishments. So there's the rest of the field. Kobayashi made a huge leap, and Joey Chestnut made another huge leap. But if you reverse it, then it doesn't look like there's much gap. So Kobayashi is a huge gap no matter how you slice it. But it doesn't look like much back gap. So that leads to your question about extramal. I, in, in some level, Chestnut is just the next thing past Kobayashi. And another way of looking at it, he's actually a step of enormous greatness. And this is what we argue about all the time. Where where are you? Are you, a, are you just a little bit better than the, the guy a, before? Is a, or is it greatness Is he a force are we observing like like let's assume at some point Chestnut will stop eating, mm-hmm. would stop being a competitive eater? Although he's only thirty four, although we have no data really that says when's the prime of a competitive eater. Historically, we it's don't. been believed. <laughs> no, it's interesting. No, the thing I'm enjoying about this conversation, besides I love competitive eating, and if you want to join the conversation or if you have a question about WFOC or anything else, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. The reason I love Wharton Moneyball isn't just because I get to watch sports and analytics. Analytics all day long and all that, and tell my wife, "Hey, look, I'm doing it for research." Yeah, we got to work today. It's I got to watch the Yankee game. It's, it's, it's extremely important. It's, it's my not, job. It is that, but it's the other reason. We're actually talking about WFOCE like it was a legitimate sport, <laughs> exactly. And that in some, but no, no, but we're talking about statistics. We're talking about extremal. Right. You just brought up what's the right units of analysis in which in which to measure how extreme someone is. What I'm about to ask you is. So now he's been at 74, he ate 74, but we've pretty much over the last, I'll say, six or seven years, the peak hasn't really gone up. It's gone up a tiny bit. It went to like 72 and a half to 73. Now it's 74. If I had to ask you, so we're sitting here 10 years from now, what's the record? How would you ask, so I'm sure every listener out there on Wharton Moneyball saying, "How, how high can this go? And... Do you statistician guys have anything to say about it? 
Any thoughts on how you would even predict what the record well, might both be? Well, I mean, be? basically, you, you would probably try to fit a curve to the distribution and to the records as they move out. And this is what's done in, in Olympic competition. Every sport. Every sport. So so particularly when there's a, kind of like a, a, a fixed time limit. These fixed time limit, they tend to all have these um, kind of logarithmic decay functions. Really, they're 1 over X decay functions. And then you can... You can so just you, to be clear to our listeners, what Adi's talking about is the shape of the curve, and 1 over X and log X are curves that have... Uh, diminishing, diminishing returns, returns right. which means if you were to plot these curves, it's not like they incre- they do increase forever, but at a very, very slow rate. rate. And That's what right. Adi's pointing out, he's about to talk to us about, is we're on the very flat part. We're, at the, we're actually at, at the, the very, very flat, flat part. part. So if you look at it, if you look at that curve, um, Chestnut made a, made a drop from, from Kobayashi. Kobayashi made the huge drop. And if you use all that data to infer what's going to happen in the future, you're really not looking at too much more than 76, 77 hot dogs. <laughs> it's amazing I'm making this forecast. But it's exactly the same thing you could predict for what would be the world's fastest 100-meter uh, dash. Um, what's the world's fastest mile? You know, mile. What's the world's fastest uh, 50 or 100-meter butterfly in swimming? Of these events, they, they keep getting better, but they're asymptoting out. And you can use a, a, a mathematical function to kind of guess what that asymptote would be. In contrast, you can't use this to predict things like the most number of home runs um, hit in a season. That We don't quite get under what that would do, although you can, can invert it and try to do the same thing in terms of pacing um, that you can that you get at, and in fact, just we I mentioned the difference between one over x and, and x or seconds per hot dog or hot dogs per second. But it actually in a, in a paper I, I, I worked on years ago, mm-hmm. it actually matters. I was once remember the paper we wrote um, trying to detect whether Roger Clemens uh, had used uh, had uh, had anomalies, if you will, in his career trajectory. Oh, I remember, you remember this, that. I remember well. all of it well. But I actually tried to p- apply the same sort of technology to see if you could look at home run frequencies rather than say strikeout frequencies which we were using for Roger Clemens to detect whether or not there are individuals who have career trajectories that look absolutely anomalous. And of course, um, so when I used um, um, basically at-bats per home run, I got a very different sort of graph than when I used home runs per at-bat. And when I used the, the, um, the basically distance between home runs in terms of at-bats as opposed right. to... Uh, it's, and it's very different and because you look at the players... Uh, uh, so Bobby bon- Barry Bonds is like 1 in 10. A typical is about, say, 1 in, one in 25. And depending on, on the graphic, the way you look at it, they didn't stand out or they did. And what so I mean by they... So question by that. I, I hadn't thought about this. Any advice? I mean, I'm sure there are many people here listening to Wharton Moneyball. Again, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. I'm here this morning with Adi Weiner, professor of statistics. And we're talking about, well, I would say we're talking about hot dog eating, but now we're we're talking about something different. (laughs) So now I want to ask you a question. Any advice to any of our listeners out there? What unit of analysis should someone be analyzing? There actually the data is in? an answer. The, the there answer, is. yes, the answer is you want to put the random variable on top, and you want to put the constant in the denominator, and that because the random variable will end up being normally. So, distributed. give me an example for. So the... it should be hot dogs per second. Okay, that's the right answer. Okay. And you shouldn't look at seconds per hot dog because that it's like an inverse of a normal. Now, when things are, they don't tend to just, uh, they're not that different in asymptopia, but they can be hugely different. I and see. it makes a difference. So, so I actually hmm, use this I analysis. Had never thought and about I will that. talk about, I just want to make a quick shout out. I just began my Moneyball Academy, uh, which is a great program. Something near and dear to my heart since my son Zach did it last That's year. That's right. And this is a, and he a, talks a, about it quite often. He does. And in fact, uh, the, the, so we have students who come from all over the world, eight countries and, and almost half the states, and they come to 
study statistics and computing, statistical computing all in the context of sports. And they're here for three weeks in this summer. And um, they're all, so I, I use a lot of these examples in my class. And in fact, the example that we're talking about right now is one that I will be using in the next couple of days. This idea of what's the right unit of analysis. So think about, remember the- Well, let me ask you a question then about the unit of analysis. So you just said something. And so before my, well, since we're the same age, before my- uh, <laughs> Exactly. Before, exactly the same age, before my adult brain forgets it. If- if let's just say, let's approximate it, let's just imagine. So let me just ask, let me just do a little picture for everybody here on the radio. Let's imagine hot dogs consumption was normally distributed. It's not, but let's pretend it was. At a fixed time in- yeah, interval. Yeah, let's imagine. So that means everyone knows the, the word the bell-shaped curve. It looks like a bell-shaped curve. If you take one over a normal, we both know that's Cauchy tends to be koshy. It's going to have fatter tails. That's right. So if you look at something in terms of hot dogs per second or seconds per hot dog, the fact that one is normal, which has shorter tails, and one is koshy, which has fatter tails, won't that say something about the likely extremum one can find using one or the other? Okay, it does, because under the normal distribution, we have a very good sense of what's extrema. Under the Cauchy distribution, we don't because it's a, it's an infinite expectation distribution. It has enormous variance. Right. And so extraordinarily large things happen much more frequently under point. the Cauchy. That was my and that's question. And why, that's what, why it was when I looked at the distribution of, of uh, home runs using the Cauchy measure, which is not putting the random variable in the denominator, it, uh, Bonds, Palermo, and um, – who else was uh, uh, the, the... Well, there's McGuire, McGuire there's Sosa. And Sosa. They didn't stick out as much. when, But when you looked at it, uh, I mean, because of home Koshy, runs per at bat. Yeah, then, then they really stick out. And it's a very interesting... And you could see the same trajectory of... And we, I'm we definitely going to have to tweet on this on Morton Moneyball, because I'm going to tell you this. What the Adi just gave everybody here, by the way, a very good free statistics lesson, which all the way, by the way, I would say, has a lot to do with business. So actually, now I'm going to have to write something up quickly and tweet it after the show. The the other application is, and this is, is Fumblegate. Do you remember the Fumblegate? Uh, are we talking about the butt fumble? Or no, we we're, talk- we're talking about Tom Brady and the and the compressed, the decompressed oh, balls. Oh, oh, you're talking, okay. Uh, um, so Deflategate. Infl- oh, Inflategate, sorry. Deflategate. Deflategate, that's the right word. See, time passes. See, I thought and, you were talking about uh, Fumblegate. Right, I, I've got it wrong. All these gates, you're hard to remember. Right. But Deflategate, deflate right. So the, the question is, is, that, is, that, is could you notice anything odd about the, the, the New England Patriots sort of fumble distribution? So what you can do is you can look at plays per fumble. Oh, or that's going to put the that's going to put the random variable in the denominator. And the denominator I don't or you like can look that. at and you could fumbles per play. And there was an article written that looked at plays per fumble and found that the the uh, the New England Patriots were hugely extremal. But when you looked at when you inverted it, they went from being enormously extremal to just being ordinarily extremal. And it made a tremendous difference on the likelihood. And there was an article written about it. And, and I actually do this with my Moneyball Academy students to explain exactly why you should be doing it one way and not the other. You know, I have to start thinking. I mean, I, I, I'm a, well, I was about to say I'm a marketing I mean, I'm the chair of Wharton's marketing department. So I think it's fair to say I'm a statistician, obviously. Yes, but he is. I think it's fair to He's say a, that I'm a statistician. Mar- Card carrying everyone. I know, but I think it's fair to say that I'm a marketing person. I'm going to have to start thinking about some applications of this to my home field now of marketing. I am sure that looking at people's extreme people's buying rates, yes. I'm sure looking at people's usage on websites, I'm sure that there must be a bunch of academic articles that have kind of 
Well, one could say the findings are ambiguous depending on the way in which you analyze the data. And I think the general rubric is, and maybe our stat heads among us are appreciating it more than our more casual fans, it's the denominator and the the random variable denominator that's the culprit. All right. So let me, before we end on WFOCE, then we'll (laughs) jump, I think maybe given your preferences, we'll jump to tennis next after WFOCE. Um, If you had to make a prediction of how many mustard belts... Joey Chestnut's <laughs> going to end up with. He's at eleven. Uh, maybe this is uh, maybe Matt's looking at me cross-eyed. This is in the over/under. Is this in the over/under, Matt? Matt's gonna, Matt's saying it's in the over/under. All right. Well, we're going to do right. it now. All right. I'll I'll do an over/under on this one. So we're at eleven. He's thirty-three, thirty-four years old, which, by the way, is remarkably young. That's like I think fifty-one is someone's prime. Maybe for eating? <laughs> uh, no. Is that no, how we are exactly? No. Uh, let me think about this. I'm going to say I'm going to go over under on fifteen and a half mustard belts. Oh, total. Total. Okay, so you Not went more. So, so, so you feel you have five more. Feel, uh, I didn't less than say five. that. I, less than five. No, he's at eleven. Right. So if you're going to go over and over and fourteen, I didn't say I'm going over. Oh, under. I'm saying over. the over oh, under is fifteen over. and a half. You think he's going to do more than five yes, more? But mustard it's right. Belts. It is a well tuned over under, Eric. Well tuned. I think you have found the median of that distribution very nicely. All right. Oh. There is one other thing I want to talk about. Actually, not that I don't always wish Cade Massey were here. I want to ask you a question about, it's more of a psychology question, but, you know, we statisticians like to dabble in it. As we try to and pretend anything, anything we can psychology, think of, we'll, we'll anything we can think about, we'll dabble on. I don't know if you watched the competition, but something happened during the competition that I wonder if you think affected the competition. So let me say what it is. So during the competition... They're actually, there are people behind the eaters that are calling out how many hot dogs they've eaten, and it actually shows up on the TV screen. Now, what's interesting is a massive error was made during right, the competition. Right, right, I read about this. It turns out Joey Chestnut and the second place guy, Chicotti, I think was his last name, Chicotti, they were eating off two plates of hot dogs, and the, the people calling it out and measuring it didn't realize it. Uh-huh. So at the end, they say, Joey Chestnut's the winner with 64 hot dogs. And he's like, six. he goes, I ate 74. And world record. So I wanted to ask you, is there any chance that the mistake that happened during the competition could actually have affected his extremal value? In other words, if he ha- maybe, I mean, he kind of, maybe he knew how many he had eaten, maybe he didn't. But the fact is, he's thinking he's eating slow. So right. maybe he speeds up, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe he wanted to break, seize the goal, and he's thinking, shit, i got no chance to eat 75 or 80 hot dogs. I'm going to slow down. I'm winning. I'm not going to break the record. Is there any chance that – let me broaden the question, but you see the point here. I, uh, everything has a chance. Well, you never predict anything with zero and 100. So, if, you're, so, so I, and by the way, Do you I, think this could have yes, affected the performance? I am extremely – I'm a I'm, I'm strong believer in the idea of uh, expectations affect – performance and they expect and they affect them enormously so what kobayashi did was he showed the world that you can eat as that as many hot dogs as he was eating because if you look at the historical record they're incredibly low, low. I, mean, I mean i almost wonder if i can compete back in like the back 15 in the or 80s. 20 15 i can handle 15 no big deal right with a little train maybe with the word right? moneyball people maybe when i come in and speak to the class maybe you and i should have some hot dogs there, yeah we see can what see how, what we can do but kobayashi showed what was possible and this is something that has been replicated in a lot of areas one of things that I think is an anecdote I love to tell about a, a, a small kind of football-obsessed town that never sent anyone to any serious um, uh, Division One football powerhouse. One year, they sent someone. And then the next year, many followed. And right. the year after. And it, they became a pipeline. How did it go from none to all of a sudden... 
a lot. And it was one person to show that it Look, was Adi, possible. Adi, we could have a long discussion on, and I think you and I are agreement on this, on the value of diversity and having a diverse faculty. and a firm. Look, this isn't a show about politics or about race and morals. I'm just saying, exactly. If, if I took your words and use it for saying why it's important to have women faculty and minority faculty and all this, once you show people that something's possible, then all kinds of all things kinds happen of things in this world. And, and so, so this you're... little town was saying we're not big enough or successful enough to send our, our, our football players, as much as we love football, to a Division One, a top Division One school. And then they went to the professionals until one person and did it, then it all follows. All right. Well, we could talk about eating for the whole show, but let's let's you do, do little, Wimbledon. Well, let's yeah, let's pivot Wimbledon to the second most the, the second most important sporting event that's happening right now, or we'd say the third. I think soccer well, maybe the is World a little Cup higher. Is, it's ama- It's immense. How many? How many? One thing we talked about once in our show is just the, the price of a World Cup ticket. Oh, compared to the price of just anything else, like say the Super Bowl, even it's, the Super Bowl, it's, it's just unbelievable. It's but let's move over to Wimbledon. So there's a couple things. So just so just. For those listeners that don't know, obviously it's the top tennis event of the year. Uh, men and women both play it, obviously. Right. Men are best. On an odd surface, the grass surface. On is, the grass surface, is, which uh, is odd. And matter yeah. of fact, once Wimbledon's over, they never they play about two or three tournaments prior to Wimbledon on grass. Then they move to Wimbledon. Then there's no grass that's pretty it. much. And by for, the time the end of the tournament rolls around, the grass is so uh, hard up. and beaten up. It is a fast, fast, non-bouncy surface. So a couple things have happened. So in women, we're down to the final four right now. We men, are. by 10 o'clock today, or by noon today, Eastern, we may be down to the final four. We will be down to the final four in men. So let me bring up something that has happened on the women's side, which is kind of interesting. So the tournament starts out with 128 players. You have to win seven rounds to win the tournament. Okay. The quarterfinals is obviously the fifth round, right? The quarterfinals. So the round of 16 is the fourth round. No top 10 women made the final eight. Now... This is, it's never happened in, not just in Wimbledon, it's never happened in any major tournament in the open era. And so one of the things I want to, and by the way, on the men's side, I hate to say it. Oh, here we go. It's Federer, (laughs) Nadal, Djokovic. I could name the other people. I mean, uh, there's one American left, John Isner. Yeah. But uh, Juan Martin Del Potro is still in. It's uh, Kei Nishikori. It's just who we thought. Isner is here because he's a giant, and it's Wimbledon, and it's fast, and this is the only only potential competition he has the ability to make it this far. Correct. But it's it's who you'd expect primarily on the men's side. Why are some sports, like, Everybody knew before, I mean, maybe Serena's going to win the tournament. Serena Williams, by the way, the real, let's be clear to everybody. The reason why Serena's no top, not in the 10 top 10 is she had a baby. Yeah. She didn't play last year. Matter of fact, her world ranking going into the tournament is like 400 in the world. So they seeded her 25th in right. honor of her. But look, she, by the way, she won Wimbledon in two, besides being the greatest maybe athlete of all time and 23 majors. She won Wimbledon in 2015-16, didn't play in 17. She's playing now in 18. She's won 19 straight matches. So she's the heavy favorite. But let's ignore that she wasn't in the you top know what? 10. This is a this is the twist that makes the whole thing a suspicious conversation because you just in, don't in, buy the rankings. The, the reason the problem is you can't you don't you don't buy them either. You just gave an explanation why you don't buy them. Well, I don't know. But no, in, but in women's did you tennis, agree? There's not there wasn't given she had only played like three or four tournaments. No, she's still the number one. Serena is so much better than everybody else. 
in women's tennis. So you're stuck on Extremal today. You I really, well, you, you really like, and, and and I mean, I think Serena is the is is is. If you had to list the five people in world history, sports wise, um, who are who stand out among the rest of their competitors by a distance, oh, she would be. She would be one of them. I can't think of anybody. And if you had to do that in every sport, I mean, she would be. Do, do, I don't think there's a man who you could do that in tennis side. Not a one. I mean, there's some amazing tenors, but they have a community of them. Right. Well, that's the see. This is you bring up a great point. Because if you ask me, say, like, people would say, well, Roger, yeah, but Roger Federer, well, what about Nadal? Nadal, I mean, there's plenty Djokovic, of Joe Sampras. There are many, I mean, don't, not taking it away from them, but there are a community of men who are at the same, more or less the same level. There's only one Serena. She sticks out. I mean, if you well, could. Well, well, wait, wait, wait. We've got to do this by every sport. You, I, it's, it's too much fun to pass up. Well, let's just <laughs> take a few minutes to do this in our last few minutes before in our first quarter here. Um, let's even stick with, by the way, I'm sure there are women's tennis fans here are saying, and by the way, we're old enough to remember them. Um, does anybody forget Steffi Groff? What? Wait, no, let me but finish. Uh, does anybody forget Martina, Martina Navratilova and Chris, Chris Everett? Everett? So Wonderful. let's just be clear. It depends on how you want to measure it. But Chris Everett and Martina have 18 majors. And by the way, they played in exactly the same era. Chris Everett's a little older. But, I mean, they had to play each other. If you take Martina Navratilova off this planet, Chris Everett might have 30 majors and right. vice versa. But I'm not counting majors. I mean, it's one way to do well, it. But why, I don't think on what it's measure? just sort of this dominance that, that you, you come into a tournament. And, and she's in her. How old is Serena? 36. 36. I mean, the other tennis players were, were finished by their late 20s, 30 years old at the absolute end. But if you, I mean, I mean this is a, maybe we can argue this substantively. But in my my gut is telling me Serena is one of those really elite competitors across all sports that sticks out. I mean, I don't know where who, who let's we probably should get somebody else to in another sport to give you an equivalent. I mean, uh, Wayne Gretzky and hockey. Wayne Gretzky and hockey. I would probably have to agree. I would probably tend to say you know Babe Ruth in baseball because of the given way, where he was given where he was to his and, era. and how how he, he was dominated in both both in pitching and in hitting and he just completely transformed. I don't think the anybody sport. would say anybody in basketball while we not could, necessarily. I mean, yeah, Michael, Chamberlain at his time. Chamberlain in his time. You could say, I mean, I, Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. I mean, but but again, they have not the same exceedance. Yeah, it's right. not the same way that well, I'm would thinking you say of Serena. That, that, uh, that Tiger Woods was. Because if you look at, yes. at, at golf, yes, I would. And we, this is something we've talked about. It's almost never the case that the top ten has even has collectively has a fifty percent chance of winning, but not in the Tiger dominance period. Yeah, the, the thing about he Ti- by himself was fifty. Well, the thing that Tiger Woods, yeah, the, that, yeah, producer Matt that said, Will Chamberlain, which we agree with. I mean, yeah. for his era, he yeah. was well. But of, of course, he won. I think two titles, maybe three. It was probably two. But Bill Russell won ten. But it's part of the partly the team. People forget. So people say, well, what about Jack Nicholas? Okay, maybe. Tiger Woods won 14 majors. Jack Nicholas does have 18. Tiger Woods won 14 majors before the age of 32. Yeah. <laughs> he hasn't won one since 2008. Right. right. I'm going to say it again. Tiger Woods has 14 majors and has not won one in 10 years. Years. That's right. So he won during what would have been and should have been his absolute, absolute prime. prime. Right. Age thirty. Most people would argue between age thirty-two yeah. and forty-two 40. would be where you'd win a lot, a lot of majors. And so it's just unbelievable. Matter of fact, if you want to talk about rate, we always talk about this. That's it. He won Tournaments over a per year. quarter Don't of put- the majors. <laughs> yep. He averaged more than a one quarter. major a year. That's matter of right. Fact, of all tournaments, Tiger Woods has won roughly at seventy-nine or eighty. I forget which one. 
80 tournaments worldwide. If you eliminate the last five years, he won like 35% of the tournaments he played in. That's I think you'd have unbelievable. to put, you'd to have put him. To put him. If you make this chart of, of rate statistic, uh, compared to your community, like we were doing with Joey Chestnut compared to Kobayashi compared to the field, I think Tiger would stick out. I think I think he would, too. Well, this has been the first quarter here on Wharton Moneyball. Um, who would have thought that we would have... Well, as anybody that knows me would have known we were going to talk about uh, the world WFOC and the July 4th eating contest, but it led to a great discussion of extremal and how can you measure how extreme someone is and how you measure it. Is it hot dogs per minute or minute per hot dog? All of that matters. So uh, this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Stay with us and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, business, and analytics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor Adi Weiner from the Statistics Department. We just spent our first quarter of an hour talking about the World Federation of Competitive Eating and the July 4th hot dog contest, and of course talking about extremal, but of course we got 90 minutes to go here on the show, and of course this is a call-in show. So if there's anything you'd like to talk about in the world of sports, business, or analytics, please call us at one 844 for Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email our producer Matt Datz at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And of course, please follow us on Twitter. I will be tweeting all about extremals and all kinds of other stuff after the show on at W Moneyball. So Adi, as you know, baseball to you and me is like next to godliness. That sure is. That's that's it's it's the, it's it. the purest of sports. It's something you and I really enjoy, which means we obviously enjoy here on Wharton Moneyball our call to the bullpen segment. Here comes the skipper on his way to the mound. That's going to be all for his starter this afternoon. Einstein said it best. It's great to have an open mind, but you don't want it so open that your brains fall out. Your mind is your master, and your body is your servant. When you can get your mind to train your body at that level, now you're mastering your mind to go with it. At the 0-1 count, Chipper Jones hit 192. If you let Chipper hit the first pitch against you, cut your arm off and eat it. In God we trust, all others must have data. Wharton Moneyball's Call to the Bullpen with Rick Peterson. So we're happy to be joined by Rick Peterson this morning, a longtime frequent regular guest here on Wharton Moneyball. Rick is a former Major League pitching coach for the Mets, A's, Brewers, and Orioles, and he's now a sought-after motivational speaker and co-author of Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. So, Rick, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. How are you this morning? Awesome. How's everybody doing? We're, we're doing fantastic. We're enjoying the, the, the hot summer and the nice radio broadcast in the evening. Yeah. So, Rick, awesome. I, got, I got lots and lots to talk to you about. So let me, let me start with something first that's more personal because of what happened to me on Monday in a good way. And then I'd like to ask you about that. And Adi and I have tons of topics to huh. ask you about. But let me start with the hours. first one. First of all, I was in your former home place. Um, they actually played something called a doubleheader on Monday. Um, a real doubleheader, not that fake 1 o'clock, 7 o'clock one with two tickets. So I was at the Yankees at Orioles, doubleheader on Monday at Camden Yards. Obviously, you spent a lot of time with the Orioles. Um, so I wanted to ask you something. How, from a analytics, from a pitching perspective, do teams handle doubleheaders? And let me tell you why I was thinking about you all during the entire first game. It seemed like the Yankees were playing the B team. The Yankees only had three or four of their starting batters. They did have Sabathia pitching in the first game, but they didn't let him pitch very. They they let him pitch they let longer, him pitch too long, too long, <laughs> which maybe to try to save their relievers for the second game. Could you tell us from both an analytics, from your experience, how are doubleheaders different, if at all, or are they really just two separate games? 
Well, it, it's not so, it, there. It, what it does is it really compounds not only for that day you're 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 pitching, but also for the next three or four days. So when you when you factor in a doubleheader, I mean you're you're already you're you're already like four or five days ahead of time um, in 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 front of that doubleheader, starting to manage your pitching, and and then you also understand coming into that doubleheader who on your who on your roster as far as pitchers are concerned have options. That, that after they pitch, so for example, in the first game, let's say you have like three pitchers on your on your team that have options. So depending on how that game may may go, the first game. So so let's say for example you fall behind early, and and then you may use the pitchers that have options because at the end of that first game, those guys are sent to AAA, and you have three more pitchers on your team for that day. They did extend the rule, which I think is a great rule, that that I believe that for the second game you have a twenty six player. Right. So they did. So, right. So so they, they, they have they have kind of massaged that I, I think in a good way. But what it what it really impacts is the fact that so if you like like the Yankees pitched uh C C the first game, who pitched the second game? Sessa, I believe is his name. Yes, that's right. They so won they that one. <laughs> right. so, they, so they so they didn't use they didn't use one of their other five starters. They did not. They, no. They they did not. Right. So if, so if you don't have a day off coming up for in in the next four days, you you know that you got to your your six starters deep without question, and and then you're then you're also looking at the fact that like say CC for example, um and and how far are they going to extend him without a day off? He's they know he's coming back on four days rest. So, you, so you're really managing four days in, in front of that doubleheader. Well, this is something that, that is very big in, in contemporary baseball. This is the management of the pitching staff with the enormous uh, usage of the bullpen for these one-inning segments and the up and down from the AAA. It's, uh, it's just a, a completely different game from when we, what, we rem- what we remember as child. As child. Yeah, Rick, can someone pitch in both games of a doubleheader? Why not? A- absolutely. Sure. You're, you're, you're back in bullpen guys, like your closer, your one-inning guys, or, or your – or your matchup guys, like like you may have a lefty that that comes in and faces two lefties in the first game, and he may come back and face one lefty in the second game, you know. But but you you wouldn't have anybody pitch more than than two innings, one in each game, you know, you know typically. But your closer, you, you, I've had we've had doubleheaders where our closer pitch both ends. Yeah. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you a, uh, maybe a related question. Let's. I don't know if it's from an analytics perspective. Obviously, you've done a huge amount with pitcher mechanics. Let's imagine your starting pitch. Let's imagine it's not true, but let's imagine CC Sabathia had gotten rocked in the first inning, gotten taken out of the game. Could he have started game two? No, no, no. That, that's that's not happening. Why not? You. you, you Nobody does it. <laughs> I didn't say nobody does it. I, I understand that. I'm just but saying. Why not? Why it? not? Yeah. Why couldn't a, a starting pitcher who you know maybe only pitched one inning, maybe threw thirty pitches and got shellacked for seven runs? Why couldn't he come back and pitch the second game after a three hour rest? Well, the question isn't. It, the question is not why could he? Why could he not come back? He could come back. It's just something that you typically wouldn't do. Um, oh, we know it's not done, so we don't see it. But is, are they just too tired, or you just feel they just they didn't have the good stuff in the first game? They don't have the good stuff in the second game either. So why would you use them? Well, it's not so much. Even, I mean, like most people, when when pitchers have rough days, people think it's their stuff. It's not their stuff. It's their location. You know, without question. I mean, it, I mean, you may have a better breaking ball than another day, but but when you take a look at like 
like when pitchers give up five or six runs, this is not fifteen or twenty pitches. Right. This is like this is like two or three pitches. But typically. but you do see this with pitchers. It's something that is well documented. And I have students working on this as a research project as as we speak. The, uh, there are days where their pitchers are just awful. And and maybe it's not their stuff. It's and it's amazing. I mean, I don't know. We we can reflect on this as a good day when the Yankees just tore apart David Price, and he just looked like anything he threw. The Yankees were just crushing. And you're you're you're. And now I think back, it's definitely location. He was just letting them hit. So Rick, let me ask you a specific question about that. Is it? As a matter of fact, it relates to Adi's in my discussion in the first half hour of today's show. What's the right unit of analysis? And here's what I mean. Is it day-to-day variation? Like, let me go back to my example. CC Sabathia pitches the first... It, let's imagine. He pitches the first inning. His location's terrible. He gets hit hard. He now has a three-hour break to game two. Why does it have to be the next day? Like, maybe his location gets, magically better, better? gets magically better hours? at 7 o'clock as opposed to 4 o'clock. Like, I know there's no... I'm just asking you your opinion. I know there's not a huge amount of data on this. What's your feeling? What's your feeling? Could the location... Could a person... If we both agree... If we all agree that location is the key determinant, and we all agree that location can vary by day, why can't it vary by hour? Well, it definitely can, without question. It's just the fact that, from a health standpoint, starting pitchers are not—they're—they're not accustomed when they're not accustomed to those kind of volumes. So, when a reliever warms up in the bullpen, it's typically twelve or fifteen pitches. A starter will warm up in the bullpen, and, it, and very often, it's, it's typically. Right, right at forty pitches. Ah, okay. So, 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 so they invest more whole, heavily. Yeah, and you're and you're also talking about a whole different, a whole different line of preparation. You know, a starting pitcher starts his preparation at the beginning of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just, it's just a, it's a it's a it's a routine issue that that you just really it, it has nothing to do with data. It really has to do with it. Really has to do with the, the mental part of the of the game. And yeah, the makeup of, of a pitcher. You know, that, that's why. You have very few pitchers, even relief pitchers. I've had very few in my career. I'm talking about the premier back-end bullpen guys, the, the guys that are, are coming in to help you win a game, in particular the, the closer. Very few guys can be do like what Andrew Miller has done, where it's like, oh, yeah, bring me in in the fifth inning. That's cool. Well, you know what? Mariano Rivera, he might not be in the bullpen in the fifth inning. He, he's in the clubhouse, still getting right. stopped. He ain't going to pitch in the fifth inning because he's not even there. That's not, a great he's not, point. He's, he's, not even, he's not even there. So, so there's a lot of things that, that, that really have nothing to do with data that has to do with the, the mentality of the pitchers. It's slowly changing, without question. You know, because of the diversity. Well, I was just thinking. I, I was just thinking, Rick. Since you know, as Adi had brought up for years here in Morton Moneyball, why not have a closer start the game? Why not having starting pitcher pitch three innings in both parts of a doubleheader? I'm just. I'm not saying to yeah. do it. I'm just saying it's I not think, something we've dreamed of, and it, so they don't plan on it, and therefore they can't. They can't imagine it right now. Well, I mean, I mean, to your point, that's what Tampa's doing. I mean, to Tampa's taking right. Tampa's doing like, it. Like, no, and they're yeah, doing well example, with it. Yeah. So, for example, Evaldi. Of all the like two times through the lineup, he, he's elite. The third time through the lineup, not so good. He, he, he's 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 awful. But you know, these are things that we looked at back in during the Moneyball era. 
You know, I mean, this whole notion about pitch counts, what what the analysts don't talk about when they talk about pitch counts are like, well, why why are they taking him out? He only has like, you know, 101 pitches. Well, go take a look at his batting average against him after it gets to 75 to 80, 90 pitches. Right. It's it's skyrocketed, and it's been that way forever. Right, and and they're actually shifting. When they start with the opener, you begin with the the starter, quote starter is now in the second inning. He starts with the middle to the bottom of the lineup, and that's the group that's going to be coming up again on the on the on the back end when he's starting to tire the bottom of the lineup, not the top of the lineup, and that's why you get it twice. It's a great, I, I think it's a great strategy. But Rick, I want to change a slight topic. We're talking about predictions, and let's go back to the beginning of the season. And what we're not noticing is that a whole bunch of teams that we predicted to be terrific are terrific. Um, the Red Sox, Yankees, the Astros, uh, uh, the Dodgers are now coming on. The Cubs are doing well. But there's Indians. A, and the Indians, of course, in a division which has no talent. Um, but there are a couple anomalies. And here in Philadelphia, big shout yeah. out to, to, uh, to our Philadelphia crew. The yeah. Philadelphia Phillies are now in first place. Nobody would have forecasted this. And no one would have forecasted, I think, that the Nationals would have taken such a fall at this point. Why, why are the Phillies doing so well? And I think a lot has to do with their, 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 their pitching staff, what they've done with, with I think, unknown. So what's, what do you think about the Phillies? Well, well, first of all, I don't think it's so much about what the Phillies are doing because I think the people, the insiders in baseball, realize that, for, first of all, when you have young players, it's very unpredictable like the Yankees last year. It's very unpredictable. Who, who, who would have thought, based on the year before, that Judge was going to have the year that he had last year right. and, and then pick up where he left off? So the unpredictability of young, very talented players is is is, is just such a it's such a big question mark. But I think that the, the insiders in baseball looked at looked at this club and said, "Listen, you know, with that starting pitching, with the potential of that starting pitching to, to settle in, if they do settle in, and some of their younger players settle in, you know, they they should be about you know ten games over five hundred. What what puts the Phillies in first place is the fact that the Nats fall off." No, no one, no one predicted that the Nats would be as awful as they as they possibly are. Who would possibly predict that Harper's hitting under two ten? Well, so speaking of Harper, his agent Scott Boras, who everyone of course is well aware of, went on a rant about the shift and how mm-hmm. it's discriminatory against left-handed hitters. And of course, my immediate response is, but left-handed hitters are two steps closer to first base, and they face eighty percent right righty, so they have a mismatch, and they have all these advantages. So in some level, it's it's uh, evening things up. What do you think about that 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 the shift and particularly its effect on left-handers and the legitimacy of Scott Boras's complaint? Well, he, he's got he's got a legitimate complaint, and, and, but his complaint is based on take take the last three years of Harper's spray charts and then put a shift to it and then take a look at what's going to happen to the batting average. If if he if he takes his spray chart and then shifts it and then starts to spray it throughout the throughout the other side of the the, the infield like we talked about last time i think it's more it's it's more hitters approach than it, than it is than it is the shift because once players once players start beating the shift consistently you think they would the reason they're shifting is because the predictability that the ball's going to be hit here is is very high and and the fact that he keeps hitting it there that's why he's hitting 210 now yeah. if he started if he started hitting ground balls and line drives to the other side of the field more often they wouldn't be shifted them. Well, let me just tell you from the course of a game. from my Yankees Orioles doubleheader. The Yankees have a player. I I don't remember. I honestly don't remember if it was Greg Bird or this guy Wade, but there was uh, all four guys were on between the, first and second base. Yeah. It was it was a lefty. Yeah, and it was Wade. Mm-hmm. It was Wade. Okay, he bunted right. He, he bunted. Yeah, 
And I know, Rick, I don't know if this is, I'm not going to make, this is N equals one. I don't know if this goes. The next time he was up, there were only three guys to the right. The, the third baseman did not had, go. D- 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 was close to second base, but was nowhere near. He was in between second and third. So I'm not, I'm just trying to reinforce your point. It just took one at bat for, for Wade to bunt down the third baseline. For an easy single. Which, by the way, uh, then, um, Gardner hit a two-run homer right after that, and that would have been the third out of the inning, by the way. It took one at-bat for the shift to even change, even so slightly, which I'm sure, by the way, even if he wanted to pull the ball to the right side, that less shift probably would have helped his batting average by a little bit. Exactly. exactly. And that's the point. And, and, and what Rob Manford was hoping, and when he talked about he made a big point of it last year before the season, when, when they was asked about these shifts and are they going to do something about you know, maybe having rules that you can only have three players on one side of the field or whatever. And he said, hey, the players will take care of this themselves because if the hitters start to use the whole field, these shifts are going to the shifts are going to stop. You know, or not stop, but they're not going to be as prevalent as, as exactly what we're talking about. So, and, and I and I think the game, you know, starts to level itself out. And, and so trends. Yeah, that's why there's trends, right? That there wouldn't there wouldn't be trends if things wouldn't if things wouldn't change, right? They go in cycles. Absolutely. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. We're talking to a, pit, a former pitching coach and a head of baseball development, uh, Rick Peterson. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for Rick, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So Rick, we also have something coming up next week in baseball called the All Star Game, and we wanted to ask you. From an analytics perspective, also from a pitching coach perspective, obviously something you have extensive experience in in both, how did you think about the All-Star game? Did Are you a believer? Let me ask you a three-part question, but it's really one question. Are you a believer in momentum, that if you're a team that's hot, it could kill your momentum? Number two, relatedly, if you're a pitcher, how do you handle this extended break, or do you have them almost pretend like the break isn't there, or is the full shutdown rest worth it? Um, and the third one is, um, what do you think about someone pitching in the All-Star game? So how did you think about the whole thing? Momentum, someone pitching, it breaking their routine. Were you happy there was a break, or were you like, oh, I can't believe it, you know, Maddox and Glavin and Smoltz, they're doing so well, I want to keep rolling. Well, well, to your to your point, I mean, these are these are great questions because we we spent a tremendous amount of time looking at looking at matchups and taking a look at our rotation and taking a look at coming coming off the break, and now it's even a little bit more difficult because they've added an extra day on, on, on the break. Now, now it's a four day break. It used to be a three day break, and and I got to tell you, four four day break in baseball is like about a month vacation for somebody else in other businesses. You know, so when you, when people have these like three or four day or three day weekends, you know, top executives and they come back Monday morning and, and that whole Monday morning is a nightmare, you know, to get everything back in order. It's a, it's the same thing when you come off the break. Ironically enough, we were unbelievable coming off the break. I mean, we always we, we came into the break right around 500. We're scuffling, trying to get our head above water, and for whatever reason, when we came off the which break, which way are you referring to? Are you referring to the A's and the money ball era? The, the, fr- the, the, the A's and the money ball. Era. Oh, okay. Yeah, if you look at our second half records, they were they were like stupid, and we kept looking at like what can we do to get off to a good start, and then that really prompted a whole different way that we that, that we prepared our starting pitchers coming coming into the season. And, it, and we were one of the first people to ever do it, where we put Tom Glavin. It was the first time Tom Glavin, when I came to the Mets, 
we followed up to right where we left off, where Tom Glavin, we put our starters on a five-day rotation. Most most teams, they now now they've followed suit, but most teams, the, the traditional way of getting starting pitching ready for a season would be you pitch two innings, you have three days rest, you pitch three innings, three days rest, four days four innings, three days rest, and then five innings, and now you're on a five-day rotation. We put our starting pitchers on a five-day rotation from the from the first time that they, they pitched in, in a game. And and so that way they were on an in-season routine. So to your point about the break and, and guys throwing on the break, you typically want to make sure that, that guys follow up the same routine throwing-wise that they do. You know, may, maybe take an extra day during the during the break, but, like, if you have a starting pitcher that's, that's pitching – uh, on on Friday, coming off the break, he has he has a bullpen on Tuesday <clears throat> during during the All Star break. So Rick, we'll, yeah, yeah. Let me just ask one last question. We only have I apologize. We only have one minute left. So just last question: Why are there ten starting pitchers this year with ERAs under two and a half? I was looking at the leaders in both leagues, and I I don't think in my history of watch, form, watching baseball I've ever seen this. Why do pitchers seem to be doing so well this year? And I apologize. Thirty seconds. What what are your thoughts? Because of the hitting styles, it totally changes. It's 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 yep. home run or bu- it's home run or bust, and and, and elevate hitters, hitters now are, are dangerous outs is what it comes down to. It's, this hitting style is the easiest hitting style to hit to pitch against. But the reason why you're seeing so home run, so many home runs, to your point, Adi, about ele- ele- elevating. But the issue is is how high do you elevate? So when guys go to elevate, if they don't get it up quite high enough, that's why you see the home runs off the charts. So when you take a look at, like, for example, very quickly, if you want to elevate against Jorge Posada, you only need to go about six inches above the belt. If you want to, if you want to elevate against pool holes, you better get about chin high. You better get about chin high because letter high is not high enough for pool holes. You know, so, so how high you elevate is totally different. But that's why pitchers are doing so well because, you know, you, you see the high, high percentages of, of breaking balls. Pitchers are using, utilizing their fastballs less than they've ever have. And, and they're using a lot of breaking balls at the bottom of the strike zone, and hitters are chasing them, and they elevate the fastball. It's really that simple. Well, Rick, we want to thank you for your insights. We yeah, will, thank we, you, Rick. Thank you, as always, Rick. This has been Rick Peterson, uh, famed uh, pitching coach and player, player development coach in baseball. Uh, this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We have a great second half coming. We're going to talk about World Cup soccer. We're going to do our over-unders. Thanks again to Rick Peterson, and please join us again after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. We've had a great first half of Wharton Moneyball with our call to the bullpen segment and Rick Peterson. Of course, in the first half hour, Adi Weiner and I were talking about extremum in sports, and we talked about, of course, hot dog eating, Joey Chestnut and his 11 mustard belts. We spent time talking about Serena Williams and her, how exceedent she is on everyone else. But, of course, this isn't the only sporting event happening now. There's lots of other sporting events. And, of course, the biggest of all sporting events, maybe in any time of the year or any time in the 40 years, is it, of course, World Cup soccer. So we're really fortunate to have Omar Chowdhury uh, joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Omar is the head of football, or as we call it here in the U.S., soccer intelligence at 21st Club, a business that helps soccer teams win by thinking differently. Um, They do lots and lots of work with teams all over the world in player evaluation, in forecasting, etc. So, Omar, this is Eric Bradlow. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me, Eric. Oh, it's fantastic to have you back here on the show. Um, 
Wow. It's so much to ask you and so little time. So why don't I just start with something just slightly outside of the World Cup that just, I think, was announced yesterday, which, of mm. course, was Ronaldo moving to uh, Juventus. And did I get that right? Yeah, Juventus. Juventus. And so um, and I think it was for something like 130-something million dollars, somewhere in that range. So, yeah, something, yeah. So how do you guys at 21st Club both without giving away your secret sauce, how do you guys think about player value? How how did you, when you first heard about this, how did you think about this? And is soccer, forget the selling of the tickets, is winning on the field a star-driven thing in soccer, the same way it is in the NBA, the NFL, etc.? Yeah, so, so I mean, firstly on values, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion over recent years, particularly last summer when Neymar went for 222 million euros to PSG around this kind of explosion of values in in football. And by and large, um, whilst the values are increasing, the, the revenues are increasing too. So clubs in all the major leagues are seeing major increases in, in the amount of money coming in from broadcast money, particularly in the Premier League, but also also elsewhere. Um, and so actually the, the market's pretty consistent in how much they pay for the top talent. Um, they usually, you know, they usually pay for top star players around 20 to 25% of, of their revenues. And that's been pretty consistent now for about uh, eight to 10 years, ever since UEFA, who are the governing body in, in Europe, have implemented stronger uh, financial regulation. Um, now, Ronaldo's not inaffordable um, to Juventus at that, at that price. Um, it is a lot of money, and it is, he is comfortably the most expensive 33-year-old in history. Well, I was going to ask you, that's exactly, Omar, what I was going to ask you next. Mm-hmm. I mean, Neymar, I think, is 26, or he's certainly in mm-hmm. his early to mid-20s. Uh, Ronaldo's 33. So, uh, you know, we study this in Morton Moneyball. We're an analytics and sports show. We study age curves all the time. Is this more symbolic because of how, although you remember it was Ronaldo 3, Spain 3 earlier in the World Cup, um, mm-hmm. is 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 this more symbolic or does Ronaldo have five more great years left in him? Is that going to happen in a, a 33-year-old soccer player? Well, not normally, <laughs> but Ronaldo's not a normal player and he's, he's been able to reinvent himself. I mean, normally with, with attacking players and wingers, um, they tend to peak around 25, 26 years old. So we're talking about a player who's already kind of seven or eight years theoretically past his peak but one of the things Ronaldo's done amazingly really no one really predicted this is in the last couple of years he's reinvented himself as a as a striker and he's been scoring almost as many goals as what he was at the at the peak of his powers um 105 million euros I think is what it is 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 a lot for a 33 year old and I, I part of me despite you know early acknowledging that the values are generally in line with what clubs can afford it it strikes me as too much for a, for a player like Ronaldo who you know, over a multi-year contract, it's very difficult to predict. There's a huge amount of uncertainty there around what his future performance is going to be. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think it's a lot of money. I do think it's um, more than what is reasonable. And, and generally, I would say that football clubs tend to overvalue um, the players within their team. Normally, when clubs lose a star player, it's not doesn't have as big an impact as as what you sometimes might expect. I mean, Barcelona lost Neymar and still comfortably won the league. Um, so it is a lot of money for Ronaldo. I think it's probably a bit a bit higher than um, than what uh, I would certainly be paying for if I was in Juventus' shoes. So before we dive into the specifics of this World Cup, and obviously we're down to three teams right now, um, before we specifically dive into that, 
how, can you tell us about the work again for our listeners here that weren't haven't heard you before on at Twenty First Club and what it is you guys do? So, like, how would you? Let's imagine you had been hired by Juventus to put an economic value on Ronaldo, or let's mm-hmm. imagine you were hired by a club to think about how to build the optimal team. What kind of work do you guys do to actually help soccer teams perform? Well, those are exactly the types of projects we work on. So we work on kind of strategic level projects with owners and boards at football clubs, really trying to help them, trying to give them the confidence to make major decisions through providing them with better information. So we have a whole intelligence team uh, over here in London who have built models that try and essentially estimate the the value of players, the quality of players, the value of coaches, uh, the value of youth development and all the other processes that can go into creating a winning team. So around Ronaldo, for example, we have a a player model that tries to estimate what's the value of Ronaldo to any given team in the world. And we can estimate that in kind of points per season terms, in terms of increased odds of winning the, the title or the Champions League to Juventus. Wow, uh, that's, that's amazing. So you actually have the, I'll call it, we, we call it in statistics, you literally have a counterfactual model that places Ronaldo or whoever it is, Neymar, Suarez, whoever it is, on a different team and what their change in, let's say, win probability and goal scoring might be? Yes, exactly. And that's exactly what we do. And obviously, you know, we're dealing in estimations and probabilities here. That's exactly what we do um, uh, for clubs. And we try and give them much more of a grounding, a much better starting point than what they're historically used to. You know, a lot of the time a player might, or scouts might look at a player and say, you know, this guy's tall, he's powerful, you know, he'll boss defenders around. But that doesn't have any kind of substantial meaning beyond those words in in of itself. So we try and ground that and say, okay, well, we estimate Ronaldo, and I'm picking numbers out the top of my head here, but we estimate Ronaldo's worth two, three points a season at Juventus. You can then translate that into revenue terms going, okay, well, that might increase their title odds by five percentage points, might increase their uh, Champions League odds by three percentage points, um, and then you can turn that into into a, a value. Now, what, what we tend to see is that clubs probably overestimate the impact a player can have you know you ask a player um, you ask someone in, in football and a lot of the time they'll say oh the best players are worth 10 15 20 points a season uh, historically what we see is that usually the best players are worth at most around five points a season and often it's a lot less than that and um, so we again through the analytics have, have kind of shown that and helped clubs get to hopefully more reasonable valuations when they're both buying and selling players and then you do actually, the last part about this, you actually not only talk about it about on-field performance, but then you actually try to translate it into dollars for the team. So you, in some sense, at 21st Club, you guys actually try to what I'll call match or link the on-field side with the revenue side. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, football clubs, uh, as with any sports teams, are, are businesses. So you can make sporting decisions, but they have business consequences, um, particularly in football, because the swings can be so massive. You know, you get relegated from the Premier League and your revenue one year is uh, is what in excess of £140 million. And the following year, uh, you'll be looking at, you know, slowly decreasing that towards around £30 million. So that's an enormous, enormous change. And you have to be able to contextualise the sporting decisions you make in the in the context of the revenues that you have. And I'm definitely going to want to spend the last 15 or 20 minutes I have with you talking about this World Cup. But one last question. I would like always like to ask everybody that works in the field of analytics this question. If 21st Club could do their job better, would it be because of one of the following three reasons? Is it what will lead to you doing better in the next five years, let's say? Is it better data, better math, or 
clubs having a, a greater willingness to kind of use what you guys do? I always try to get experts and leaders' thoughts. Is it data? Do you have a data problem? Do you have a math problem? Or do you have a business problem? So at the moment, I, I don't think we have a data problem. Um, football's been collecting data now for 15 years or so, uh, and the data is very detailed, um, and people working in football can kind of do whatever they want within, within whatever capability that they have. Um, there is a math problem. I like to think we've got one of the smartest um, teams working in football um, who are very bright and are, are tackling the data in, in ways that the sport has never really seen. Um, but, but ultimately, as you say, it's that last point around trying to convince people within, within football that this has value alongside you know, the, the knowledge that sits within the game. Um, so as I say, there, there is a lot of data there, but there's also a lot of low-hanging fruit that hasn't been exploited yet. Um, uh, and so that's, that's really what we focus on. I see. And I know when I did some work, I spent a number of years with the Eagles, working in the NFL. There was kind of this separation between the business side, let's call it, using analytics for ticket sales and marketing and stuff versus on field. Is there that same separation in your foot in soccer slash football? Is there that same like you guys have made more headway on the business side, less on the on field? Or is it really both? Um, there, there isn't that much um, business or off-field analytics in, in football. I mean, clubs are beginning to look at it in a bit more detail because they realise, obviously, that you know they've, they've got a customer base, if you like, that they, they want to try and um, try and understand a bit better. Uh, but I'd say that both um, industry, both sides of it, are still fairly fairly young, really. Um, and so I, I know I'm, whenever I go to analytics conferences in the, in the US, I do see like a big push on the kind of sponsorship and ticketing side. Uh, but that hasn't really taken off here yet either. So on both sides of, of the coin, there's a lot to do. So we're talking to Omar Chowdhury. Omar is the head of football intelligence at 21st Club, a business that helps soccer teams win by thinking differently. And if you want to join the conversation here on Wharton Moneyball, please call 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. I'm sure many of you have questions. I'm going to start diving into about the World Cup that's going on. So Omar, let's dive into the 2018 World Cup that's going on right now. Um, before we get to the prediction maybe for today's game, the England-Croatia Serbia uh, Croatia game that's coming up this afternoon. Um, let me ask you a question. What has surprised you the most about the 2018 World Cup so far? Oh, it's, a, it's a very good question. Um, I, think, I think one of the natural inclinations you have at the start of the tournament is to look at, look at the squads that are on paper and, and almost form your entire judgment um, of, of the squads that are on paper. So you look at Teams like France obviously made the final, but teams like Brazil, Germany, Spain, Belgium, uh, and just kind of be awed by the amount of talent that those that those teams have. And then you look at teams like Iran and Sweden and Japan, and you won't even know half the names because you know most football fans might follow a, a couple of leagues um, and see the odd Champions League game, and, and therefore won't be that aware of, uh, of perhaps some of the smaller names. Um, and so sometimes I think you end up overestimating the quality of. Um, of the good teams, because a big part of how national teams play is, is the cohesiveness of the teams and the, and the coaching that goes into it. Um, and I think sometimes even myself, who and I, I try and take a, as objective a view on it as possible, and uh, can kind of get a bit surprised at how well organised some of the smaller teams can be at the World Cup. I mean, Iran now for back-to-back tournaments have been really, really impressive. They've, in this tournament, they, really, uh, they drew with Portugal, gave Spain a really tough game. And obviously Sweden made the quarterfinals off the back of a really good qualifying campaign. 
Um, so, I mean, football's a low-scoring sport, so nothing should really surprise you when, you know, when upsets happen. Uh, but certainly the smaller teams have shown that there's a smaller gap between the bigger nations than perhaps you might imagine on paper. Is it, I assume, what happened in the World Cup with obviously a number of upsets about obviously Germany going out early, Spain not advancing, maybe Portugal, etc. Um, is this good for soccer? Is it good for soccer that we're seeing, you know, as you said, you just mentioned the Swedens of the world. Look, we have Croatia in the semifinals. I mean, is that good for soccer? So, um, I think it's a symptom of good things that's happening in football. You know, one of, one of the great things that's happened is that there's been a globalization of the sport. Uh, and there's, it's one of the most, and you, I mean, you'll know this from American sports, it's incredibly meritocratic. If you're a really good young player playing in Ghana or playing in Colombia or playing in, in Canada, um, you know, someone somewhere is going to notice you pretty quickly, you know, by, by your teenage years. And there's a good chance you'll end up at a, at a top South American or top European club, get access to all those kind of facilities that are out there. And then you'll take that back um, to your national team when, when you're playing for them. So I think that we've really seen an increase in that in, in probably the last 10, 15 years um, in, in world football, where if you look at leagues like the Premier League, there are probably over 100 nationalities represented in the league. Um, and so you really got this global talent pool. Uh, and again, that's, that's one of the reasons the Minnows do well, because they normally have one or two players who are you know, competing regularly in the top competitions. So let's now start digging into the, well, there's only obviously two games. Well, there's a third place game, but let's talk about the games that are actually remaining. But let's talk, start with yesterday's game. Anything surprise you from, I, I'm a big fan of soccer, but it's one of the sports I claim to know less about than others. I have sons that all play soccer. I don't mean at that level, but I only learned the sport of soccer and its rules mainly through my kids. Mm. I looked at the France-Belgium game yesterday, and I wasn't that impressed by the offensive play in the game. I just thought it was, it just didn't seem like really high-quality football. Was it really high-quality? What did I miss in the game? How did you see the game? And obviously France won on a corner kick. Uh, what do you see, like, did your belief about France go up, go down? How did you see yesterday's game? Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't disagree with the fact that it wasn't, um, you know, if you think of World Cup semi-final, you're thinking like this is, you know, one of the top, top level games that exists in world football. Uh, but one of the challenges you have in international football is that these players come together every few months to play with each other and they're together for 10 days at a time, a little bit in the autumn, a little bit in the spring, and then obviously in the summer at the World Cup. So they're not really used to playing with each other. And coaching, you know, what we see consistently in the data is that coaches, the improvements that they tend to make, the immediate improvements they tend to make, tend to be defensively rather than in attack. So what you tend to find in international football is that it's a bit more of a defensive game than at club football, where coaches have more time to work on the training field, to work on transitions and attacking football. Um, and so this, this tournament may have been a little bit of an exception. There's I mean, hardly been a nil-nil draw in this tournament. But broadly, you will tend to see more defensive games in, in international football. So, so in that context, um, France are an interesting one because they're, they're so full of attacking talent. You know, they've got uh, Dembele sitting on the bench. They could leave someone like Lacazette at home, Benzema at home. Um, you know, they've got Griezmann on the pitch, uh, Mbappe on the pitch. Um, Giroud. But they shot... As Giroud, yeah, as well, who, who plays a crucial role in that team and actually kind of reflects a little bit the pragmatism that France has, um, that, you know, they, they could play with all these kind of flair players, but Giroud helps bring other players into the game. Uh, and so Deschamps has gone with a slightly more defensive approach. They defended very, very well yesterday. Um, 
Well, their um, goal, let yeah. me just say, France's goalie made a save that I don't even know how he saw that ball. Maybe it was in the 40th or 41st minute. I don't even know how he saw that ball that was bending into the corner that he dove for. He made two or three what I thought were remarkable saves in that game. Yeah, he did. And I thought, I mean, you know, history will remember it that, you know, France proceeded all the way through the tournament, were only trailing for a handful of minutes against Argentina. Um, but but actually, Belgium gave it a really good go yesterday. I thought that they were the better team in the first half. And, I did too. Yeah, and as you say, Lloris in the, in the France goal probably made it was probably the busier of the two goalkeepers. Um, so it was one of those games that could have gone either way, and that's that's football. Um, but yeah, in, in the end, I mean, France did defend pretty resolutely, and and they, you know, of all the teams in this tournament, they've not been that inspiring, but. You could probably argue that they deserve their place in the final for, for how they've played so far. So let me ask you a question. Do you think that analytics plays a role? Like you've, I don't know if you meant to say this, but maybe you did. As the tournament goes on, and you said defense plays a, tends to play a larger role, could analytics have a role in that? In other words, does analytics in – I'll just use football. used to be football. Does analytics in football tend to lead to better defense because you've now seen a team like they've seen Belgium play five, six, seven times just in the last couple of weeks. Do you think that mm-hmm. analytics could be playing a role in like we know their tendencies now, we can measure everything on the field? You even said you don't have a data problem, you know, you don't have an analysis problem. Does analytics, could analytics be playing a role in this? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I doubt um, that analytics is playing a major role in, in, in this World Cup um, when it comes to assessing. Uh, and when I'm talking about analytics, I'm talking about really kind of proper, um, you know, statistical modeling of, of teams and understand, you know, fundamentally trying to understand them through the data. There'll be a lot of video analysis and using basic stats, but not maybe that level of uh, of detailed analysis that we we would normally associate with with analytics. Um, I think, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think understanding, you know, kind of structures and, and patterns of play is, is definitely one of the things analytics can help with because you get you get obviously a, a larger data a, a larger sample size from that um but yeah i, I think fundamentally it'd probably help with with defense more than attack what we tend to see is attack relies a lot more on the kind of individual brilliance of players you know we saw with belgium yesterday someone like hazard de bruyne lukaku they, they were the types of players who could do things that maybe you couldn't predict uh, that could could unlock the game. So, yeah, I think um, as, as a theory there, um, analytics could do more to help teams on, on defense. Yeah, I think uh, I, I would, well, you know, he's Mr. Hot and Cold, how people think of him. Uh, I was not impressed by Lukaku's play yesterday. I don't think that was one of his best games. How about that? That was just my opinion, but I'm a, just a lay person watching the game. It did not seem like he had a great game yesterday when, you know, um, he was obviously, he's obviously a big part of their team. But I wanted to ask you a related question to that. So it's just now a question, which is, I know how I watch sports that I know extraordinarily well. How do you watch football? Can you just watch it with you know a beer in your hand and as a just a person that doesn't have deep expertise in the area? Can you watch it as a fan, or is your analytics brain always on even when watching football? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, last night I happened to be um, in Amsterdam watching the game in a, in a French bar, so that was definitely uh, more of a fan experience than what, what I normally watch a game. Um, that yeah, must I mean, have been I, really fun, by the way. Yeah, it was brilliant. Um, it, was, it was a really good atmosphere. And obviously, with France winning it kind of kind of helped. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I do. I obviously watch football a lot different to what I would have done maybe kind of five, ten years ago. Um, fundamentally, understanding that you know results can happen that don't necessarily reflect the performances of the teams, and really trying to 
really trying to understand the performance rather than the outcomes. Uh, I think uh, in, the, in the World Cup, it's particularly true. There's been teams, I mean, we could talk about England, for example, who haven't necessarily been totally fluent, uh, but have had good results throughout the tournament. Um, and so really trying to understand, well, fundamentally, how good is this team uh, beyond what their results just say? Um, but yeah, I, I think you probably end up as, as an as an analytics watcher of football, you probably end up getting less carried away with, with both good and bad results. Well, let me ask you, this is maybe more of a diagnostic question than uh, your answer. Uh, I watch sports, certain sports, with a pad in front of me to take notes on things I want to think about in the future from an analytics perspective. When you watch football, do you ever, like, take notes? Uh, normally it's posting things on our internal Slack chat um, huh. for, for the other the other guys in our intelligence team to try and work out uh so if it's i don't know we were talking last night around you know quantifying some of those movements of players a bit better and and the impact that they bring to a team that isn't necessarily measurable through through goals and assists so we were kind of debating that a little bit on, on our slack group but uh but yeah certainly i mean it's it, my brain's always ticking during a game around things that maybe i wish i could understand a little bit better well let's now start move let's move on to the other game which is being played today obviously england versus croatia how do you see that game going and uh you know will the england misery well they already won a game on penalty kicks so their misery is somewhat over but <laughs> how how do you see the england croatia game going today uh, probably a little bit different to how england games have gone so far um they've been fortunate to be up against sides that don't necessarily want to or, or, or keep the ball particularly well um, so there's a, there's a chance England tonight have less than 50% of the possession uh, which which is unusual in this tournament they normally had more of the ball um, and that's because Croatia got a couple of very good central midfielders in, in Rakitic and Modric they both won the Champions League they're both very very experienced players um, so it'll be interesting to see how England respond to that um, because they, they'll probably end up playing in, in a slightly different way to Croatia looking to exploit the space in behind those those central midfielders. So that'll be a slightly new challenge for England. Um, England haven't been that great at creating chances from open play in this tournament. Uh, you mentioned the France goal from a set piece yesterday. That's pretty much exclusively how England has scored goals in this tournament. Well, that's what I was going to I was going to get to that mm. in a second, but please keep going. I was going to get to the set piece part. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, England have, have scored a number of goals from corners and penalties in, the, in this tournament, which, which is a credit to the way that they've set up on set pieces, but it they haven't struggled a little bit from open play, uh, and that's going to be a real challenge um, tomorrow because they may not have, uh, they may, may have even fewer opportunities from open play because they might have less of the ball. Well, let me ask you: Can a team play a strategy to say we're going to play the game to get corners? I'm just asking you because I'm again, I, I, well, as you can tell, I've been watching a lot of football, so I, I'm knowledgeable enough, but I'm not an expert. Can a team play a strategy that says we're going to play? deep balls to hopefully get corners because we know we score well on set pieces. We not, we don't score well on open play. Can they play? I mean, every team plays to get a penalty in the box and a penalty shot, guys flopping all over the place. But can <laughs> England, knowing that they've been successful at set pieces, can they play a strategy to either get fouls and get good set pieces or to get corners and good set pieces? Can they play a strategy to try to, in some sense, induce those types of uh, occurrences? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, normally that those types of tactics have been associated with, uh, in English football anyway, with lower league teams or teams towards the bottom of the top division who are looking to get into kind of mid-table positions. So famously, Stoke under Tony Pulis had uh, very good corner delivery, but also very good throw-in delivery. You would have seen long throw-ins from, from Iceland, Sweden, Denmark in this World Cup, but, but Stoke probably had the best guy, a guy called Rory Delap, about 10 years ago, who 
I mean, their throw-ins were probably some of the most threatening set pieces throughout the entire division. So, so teams can do that. The, the interesting thing about football is that there's a little bit of a stigma almost around set pieces, almost as if like a, a set piece goal is not worth as much as an open play goal. Uh, and there's, there's some merit in that, in that um, set piece goals are slightly less repeatable than open play goals. You tend to see more random variation among set piece goals over time. Um, but nevertheless, <laughs> a goal is a goal, right? And, and England certainly shouldn't be afraid of, of trying to get corners and trying to get free kicks in dangerous positions well, rather than necessarily trying to work openings. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. In some sense, look, if you're an English football fan, you want them to win the World Cup and you don't really, or any team, not just England, you don't care how it's done. You just want them to win. But I want to ask you, do you think that plays in the psyche of the team at all? Like, we want to win this beautifully. We don't want to win this in corners or penalty kicks or anything else like that. To me, I've always said to my kids all the time when they're competing, who cares how you win? you got to win the game. That's your number one priority. Do you think it's entering the coaching team, the staff, the players' minds at all? We want to win this you know, in an elegant kind of way. Yeah, I mean, it's always been an interesting discussion in, in, in this country because football, you could go into a kind of long debate around the, the history of football in this country, but fundamentally it's always been seen as a game as opposed to a profession. And when you see something as a game, it's like, you know, it's like playing Monopoly or it's like playing any kind of board game. You, you try not to cheat. You try and play within the rules. You try and kind of be a good guy, I guess, if you like. Um, but, but the attitude here, I think, is changing a little bit. And there was a good example of that in the Columbia game, the second round, where England weren't afraid to get involved in little tussles. Uh, you know, Jordan Henderson went down a little bit easily in the, in the penalty area when, uh, when one of the Colombian players stuck his head into his chest and, and chin. Um, so, so England weren't afraid there to play, play the, the game, if you like, uh, a little bit more in terms of maybe uh, bending the rules a little bit. And, and as you say, it's, it's a World Cup and team players and teams will do all kinds of things to win a World Cup. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, Luis Suarez, or a couple of World Cups ago, Luis Suarez handballing on the line um, to eventually not garner out the World Cup. And he was criticised, but also almost praised in, in equal measure. Um, you know, is however you want to play the game and sometimes maybe you can you can go a little bit too far uh, down the way of being maybe overly moralistic about it. Can a team, well let's imagine by the way that uh, obviously France is in the finals and I think you would agree that just based on my limited knowledge, Greitzman is considered one of the great players in the game today, right? I mean top 20 players maybe in football? Yeah, uh, yeah, I'd put him in, in that bracket. Certainly of strikers, there's not many elite strikers in world football, so he's certainly up there. Okay, and I agree, you would agree also, obviously you're maybe a British fan, Harry Kane, Kane would also be considered one of those great players in the game today, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd argue Harry Kane's one of the most valuable players in world football at the moment, A, because he's one of the top strikers, and B, because there's so few of them in world football, and C, because he's roughly around peak age. Right, so... If France and England play, is this another piece of evidence that you need a star player to win? Or what happens if Croatia makes it? I don't know. I apologize. I don't know Croatia's team as well. Does Croatia have any star players? Or if Croatia wins it, this is, I mean, I could see, you could see the narrative going either way. Do you mm. need a star player to win? Or can you be like a Croatia? By the way, I apologize. Maybe Croatia has the top five players, but I don't think they do. Which narrative do you think will last from this World Cup? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, firstly on Croatia, I would say, I mean, Luka Modric um, should be and probably will be regarded as one of the top central midfielders of his generation. Now, he's not in the same bracket. I, I'd, I'd agree with, with Harry, Harry Kane and, and Griezmann. Um, it is an interesting debate, this kind of star player versus, um, 
I guess. Well, what do you guys find analytically? What What do you guys find at Twenty First Club analytically about this? Well, what you what we find is that you know when you have star players in the team, they can add. Um, they they add, as I mentioned earlier, around kind of five points a season to, to a to a club side, and that's that's probably less than what um, some people expect. And what we find is that coaches tend to add, or the best coaches can add up to around ten points a season to a team. So there you, you kind of get a sense on the value that the cohesion that a coach brings and, and the value of a star player. The issue with the coaches is it's sometimes hard to identify who the good coaches are before before you hire them. Um, so, I mean, England aren't just... Uh, one of the things you should say about both France and England is that they haven't been totally dependent on Griezmann and, and Kane. They have, in the England team, there's been a lot of talk this week around how all the players within the team have kind of played a part and contributed Raheem Sterling received a lot of criticism after the Sweden game, but actually was quite an important player in terms of stretching the play. So it's not it's not necessarily about the star players in in the teams. It, you know, obviously every kind of key player helps, but uh, it's not always about them. Well, let me ask you just a couple follow up questions in our last minute or two. Um, so Harry Kane, I believe, has six of England's eleven goals. I think that's the right number. Mm-hmm. What what's what does a box score, a sophisticated analytics box score, look like in football? In other words, I I know goals. I got that. Let's assume you guys have measures of assists. Maybe you know mm-hmm. I, I got that. But how like you just said, this person helps stretch the play, etc. What are the kind of the metrics and more sophisticated things? You know, obviously people in American baseball have thought of this for a long time. How do we think about this in football? Yeah, so probably one of the most prevalent metrics that has come into play in, in the last kind of five, ten years or so is this expected goals measure, which essentially measures the quantity and quality of, of chances created by both teams. You know, I mentioned a couple of times football's a low-scoring sport, so that means that the better team might not always win. And so the way you can quantify who the better team was is by looking at whether they created better chances. Because finishing can be quite random in, in football. Teams can have plenty of chances but end up missing them. So expected goals quantifies that. And you, you may, may have seen some of that during the World Cup where people are trying to quantify when teams have played well. A good example of that or an example of that was when Belgium knocked out Brazil um, Brazil created a number of chances. Now, they were allowed to create a number of chances because they were behind in the game, and there's always that context. Uh, but on another day, it's not hard to imagine Brazil having scored a, a, a couple of more goals in that game. Um, and then going beyond that, there, there are more, more and more measures around quantifying the value of possessions. So who, as I mentioned earlier, who is creating possessions that add danger uh, to attacks? Uh, so Raheem Sterling's done that pretty well for England. Yeah, uh, so far, but also Deli Ali and uh, and uh, Jesse Lingard. So, in the last just thirty seconds, we have let's we've got to go. We're a prediction show here. We have got to go into predictions. Who do you like in England and Croatia? Uh, so uh, I'll go with our model. We've got England sixty percent to go through there. Wow. Okay, and let's go. So let's 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 play it forward. England wins. Now it's next Sunday, I believe, and France and England are playing. By the way. If I had told you before the World Cup that it was going to be <laughs> France versus England, let's, I know I don't want, if you're an English fan, I don't want to get a step ahead, but let's just pretend for a second that it is. Could you imagine the hype around that World Cup final, France versus England, and what do your models say in that? Yeah, well, so firstly, I can't tell you how the mood of the nation has changed over the last nine months since, since we qualified. It's, it's just incredible. And there, there would be unbelievable levels of excitement here, and there already has been. Um, yeah, I mean, in that final, um, we would have France's very slight favourites, but not massive favourites. Um, and so, so England still have every chance. And so 
uh, this kind of there's been an ongoing meme uh, in in England about football coming home. So you, you probably go around. There's maybe a thirty percent chance of it, it, it coming home now. Well, Omar, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. I'm sure this must be an extraordinarily busy time of year for you, obviously, given the World Cup and everything. And so thank you for joining us here this morning. Thank you very much for having me. So this has been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, We've just got off with Omar Chaudhary, uh, head of football intelligence at 21st Club, a business that helps soccer teams. Please look at everything that they're doing. It's obviously very interesting and sophisticated. This is the first three quarters of the show. We've got one quarter to go. Stay with us and join us right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. We have 90 minutes down, but 30 minutes still to go here on Wharton Moneyball. And if you want to join the conversation, you can call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We're just finishing up with Omar Chowdhury, who was talking to us about World Cup. Um, I actually see that we actually have a call here. Uh, we have Alec calling in. Alec, uh, how can I help you today? Hey, Cousin Eric, how you doing? Hey, oh, it's my Cousin Alec. Hey, how you doing this morning? I, so finally, after four years of Wharton Moneyball, am I begging you to call in? You've called in today. I'm very I, excited about it. I, I called in on your birthday two years ago, so that's not true. Ah, well, there um, we have. There I we have it. So, what? Yeah, yeah, there's lots we could talk about. I'm sure I know we both watch competitive eating. I know you've been following the World Cup because you've been texting me about the World Cup. I know you've been watching. I know you're a tennis fan. You and I have played tennis together many times. Um, but my guess is that's not what you're here to talk to me about today. Well, the big news is on the line with us, conference in is Ken Fishman at the Rio Hotel in Vegas, who's sitting in ninth chip position for a bracelet. And he starts back up in a few hours. Hey, Kenny, how you doing? Morning, Eric. Hey. Yeah, good morning. How you doing, buddy? I'm, I'm, well, I'm doing great since Alec texted me this morning that you were in ninth position. So since we're an analytics show here, let me ask you a few questions about how you're thinking about going, how about how you're doing in the World Series of Poker event that you're in. I saw that you're in event number 71. For those people that want to follow it online, uh, and this was a $5,000 no-limit hold'em buy-in tournament. There were something like 460 players to start, and there's 39 remaining. So let me ask you That's some correct. basic questions. How do you, first of all, try to size up the other players at the table? There was a big debate. I was watching some of the World Series of Poker last night on TV. A lot of people are on their phones during things, and the the poker pros that were doing the analysis saying, aren't these people paying attention to what the other people at the table are doing? So how do you think about your strategy and how you want to play versus how you read the other people at the table? Well, what I like to do is, and, and they, they move you around from table to table. You'll see, you know, tables bust, they break down. They also, they'll take the big blind off the table, move into another table. So whenever I go to a new table, unless I have just the blades, aces, ace king, you know, big big starting hands, I'm really just watching these guys, these other players, watching who's opening a lot, you know, you know, because if you're opening a lot, that means your range is pretty wide because you're not getting aces and kings every hand. So I, I kind of like just to watch who's opening, what position they're opening, how they're playing their buttons, if they're defending their big blinds. And I just like to watch, you know, and just, and just get a feel for the table before I start mixing it up with these guys. I mean, I don't want to get in there with, with a guy that opened that he has, you know, he just he only plays one hand every 30 minutes, you know. 
I'm sure people are also thinking about strategy. So you're obviously, you know, being 39 players left out of 460. We all know how it works in poker. You're in the money. So how do you think about strategy now about, you know, you and I have talked about this many, many times because you've had runs and success, successful runs in tournaments before. Does your strategy change if you want to say, look, I just want to win a bunch of money or you're playing to win? How does one's strategy in a tournament change if you're playing to win versus playing just to make money? Right. Well, that's that's a great question. As you know, the first time I played it for for a half a million dollars, I played just I I played to move up in the cash. I mean, we're playing for fifty thousand pay jumps. So, so I laid down a hand that I probably could have could have won a tournament to this guy, that actually knocked me out later on the tournament. So, I laid, laid a big hand down like Ace King because I just I just there were two short stacks at the table and I know I could make another sixty thousand dollars. I just hang in there for another ten or fifteen minutes without playing a hand. So, but this tournament is going to be a little different. You know, I'm, I'm playing this one to try to win. So, there's 39 players left. There's about eight or nine guys that are really, really low in chips. You know, they're going to, they're going to weed themselves out. So, you know, I just want to get to the final table first. That's my strategy. Just, just you know, taking little steps, get to the top nine. You know, I'm in ninth now. Just stay where I'm at or, or move up, and then we'll see what happens. You know, I mean, there's some great players, so I just you know, you, you need to have some some good luck, and you need to play smart. And the combination usually works out sometimes. And I'm sure people that are listening here in Wharton Moneyball are wondering the following. You know, I even noticed that the name right above you in chip count is the all-time leader in bracelets, Phil Helmuth. You know, obviously everybody that follows poker knows Phil Helmuth. There may be other great players in this. How much does that play a role when you're thinking about playing a hand? It's not just that you may know more about them, but you're like, oh my God, I'm playing a hand, a big hand, maybe for my tournament life against Phil Helmuth. How much does that affect you? Or is it like, you know what? could be Eric Bradlow sitting there, Alec Bradlow sitting there. It doesn't matter who it is. I got to play the cards and read the player as they are. That's exactly, you know, it's funny you say that because I don't, I don't study these players. Matter of fact, Alec knows more about them than I do. You know, when I get in these tournaments and final tables before, he's telling me this guy's at, you know, the top money list, you know, for all time. This other guy's got three bracelets. I, I just play the players. It's, it's 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 a lot easier not to. I don't get overwhelmed with who I'm playing with. I, I just I just try to get into my zone and, and and play my cards. And he's just a person, you know, with cards. That's it. You know, what I mean. So hey, let me hey, let me bust, let me bust in for a yeah, second. please. So, Danny Danny plays some of these big these big 5K and 10K tournaments. Now, the main event's different. That's 10K, and you get a zillion people. But most of these big tournaments he plays, because it's a big buy-in, it's all pros. So, like, the, the who's who in this tournament was unbelievable. The six-max final table that he made a few years back was the most insane final table. To, I mean, it was just incredible. So, so actually, the fact that he doesn't watch TV, poker on TV that much and doesn't pay attention, I think actually helps him. Because there's no there's no awe there's no like I mean of course Phil Ivy yeah you might you know you might get a little bit tight but aside from that I mean really he's uh, he just looks at him just like they put their pants on the same way he does you know I think that really helps him absolutely so Kenny yeah. let me let me just ask you one last question um, 
as you're thinking about advancing in the tournament and putting your chips in, you know, people talk about pot odds all the time, which just for our listeners here in Wharton Moneyball that aren't poker aficionados, let me just be clear on this. Let's imagine Kenny looks at his hand. He's thinking about the different hands the other people has and says, you know what? I may not be ahead. Let's imagine the other person's got a two to one advantage on me. But by my putting my money in, I'm getting five to one payout. I'm only a two to one underdog. So you know what? The expected payout is positive. So even though I don't necessarily think I'm winning the hand by every rule of mathematics you should call. How much are you mentally doing pot odds calculations as you're thinking about whether to put your chips in? Even if, And how hard is it, even if you're behind in a hand and the math says to go ahead, to do it? Well, I mean, you, you, you play enough poker, you know that, you know, you know when you have the right odds to get in the hand, you know, and you want to see a flop and you, and you want to see what they're going to do. You know, there are lots of cards that can, you know, that can scare players too. You can take hands down. If, if you know, say this guy has jacks, and I call him, and I have, let's say I have eight nine of hearts. You know, if if the king comes on the turn, okay, and I'm calling this whole way through, and I bet he, he's going to lay down those jacks. I mean, it's just the way it is. As far as um, um, you, you're always, you know, you're always going to defend your big blinds because of the odds, and, and we're anti's, we're anti's in the tournament now. So there's so much in the middle before you get started. So, well, Kenny, let me just... Holding the big blinds at this level. Well, Kenny, let me just say, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to say hello to you. Wish you luck on the air here. Uh, thank you, Alec, for initiating the call. And, of course, um, I'm always happy to talk about poker here on uh, Wharton Moneyball. So, Kenny, good luck. And, uh, obviously, you know I'll be following you today. Thanks, Eric. Hey, Eric. It was great talking to you, Alec. Thanks. All right, hey, good luck. Hey, Eric, if you make... If- if he makes the final table, we got to be out there in the morning. I got it. I got it. All right. Uh, so people will know on Morton Moneyball, if they want to see Alec Bradlow and I out in Las Vegas, we may be there tomorrow morning. But thanks. Thank you for the call, Alec. And, of course, if anybody else wants to join the conversation, any questions you may have, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So this is another favorite part of my sh- uh, of the show. Uh, matter of fact, I don't want to take more credit than I deserve, but I-, I was the one that invented this part of the show. But it's my favorite part of the show. It's a segment we call our Over under segment. It's Warden Moneyball's Over Under. That's it. That's the promo into Over Under. It's been a few weeks, but wow. All right. Well, that's the Over Under intro. Thank you. Um, so I've got a few Over Unders I'd like to go through here. Uh, let's start for the beginning one, which is something that's becoming painful for me, actually, even though I'm sort of happy. Thanks to our, my producer, Matt Datz, for putting a sheet in front of me. The first one is about baseball, and it has 2.5 combined playoff series wins for the Red Sox and Yankees, and he says including the wild card game. So I assume one of those two teams we know is going to win the division, one we know is going to win the wild card. Um, if the Yankees, let's say at the moment, they're, I think, two and a half back of the Red Sox. If they're the wild card and they win, that counts as one, right? All right. So I'm going to go over. I think um, these two teams are the class of the American League this year. Um, I think given that the Yankees or the Red Sox would be the heavy favorite in the wild card game, let's put it at one, that means that we need one and a half others. Um, it's a tough number, though, because it means at least, well, it means at least one of them if the Yankees win the wild card game, then the Yankees or Red Sox just need to well, oh, win two and a half. Sorry. It would mean one of them would have to go to the World Series. Let me think about that. So if let's say the Yankees win the wild card game, and then let's say the Yan- 
No, 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 because they could both win the next round and they could both be in the AL champion. No, no, I'm definitely going over. Thank you. Matt's a good one. I had to think about this for a minute. I'm definitely going over. It does not require one of them to be in the wild card in the World Series. If the Yankees won the first round and then didn't play the Red Sox in the second round and they both won their next round series, that would get me to three, which is over two and a half. So I'm, I'm going over uh, two and a half there. Um, we also have a number here on the list from the NBA. Let me take one here. Um, 0.5 LeBron championships in the next three years. And by the way, right now, it appears that the Vegas odds are plus 1,000, which means you can bet 100 to win 1,000. 0.5 LeBron championships in the next three years. I'm going to go under, and let me say why. It's, it's a great question. Um, I don't know how one can believe that the Lakers are better than the Warriors next year. Um, I don't know how one could believe that. The, Lake, the Warriors, besides having their core four back, now just picked up Boogie Cousins, DeMarcus Cousins. And by the way, for those people that said, you know, who is this guy? You know, I don't know that much about him. Let me just be clear on what his numbers were last season. He was averaging about 25 or 26 points and 12 or 13 rebounds a game. Matter of fact, LeBron James and many people have gone, this is the best center in the league. So, They've traded, essentially, they got rid of, uh, although he's on the Lakers now, Jamal, Javal McGee for DeMarcus Cousins. It, I mean, it's it's unbelievable how much they've upgraded at the center position, which one could argue was their maybe their one-week position. Um, so, no, I, I don't know how LeBron's going to win a championship in the next three years. Plus, let me just say, I don't even know if he's going to make the finals because I don't know. How, I mean, you can't win the championship if you don't make the finals. His eight straight years in the Eastern Conference, well, those days are gone. He's in the West now. I don't think they're better than the Warriors. I don't I don't know why you would think they're better than Houston. As a matter of fact, Houston, if Chris Paul hadn't gotten injured, Houston was going to beat, in my view. No, I have no proof of this. They were going to beat the Warriors. They're thinking of picking up Carmelo Anthony. I think they're going to get better. Um, no, I don't. I, I, I'm on going under. I don't see the Lakers. I don't see the Lakers making the finals in the next three years because I, you know, also LeBron's not getting younger. We talked about age curves here on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, I don't see LeBron's 33, but I, I hate to say it. He's an old 33. You'd never tell it because he had one of the greatest statistical seasons last year ever. I mean ever. But the guy's been in the league for 15 or 16 years. How much longer can he still be the great LeBron James? And actually, I don't see that superstar power. Yeah, I'm happy they picked up Lance Stevenson and they re-signed Cantavius Caldwell-Pope and they picked up JaVal McGee and, you know, they got Brandon Ingram and they got... Ray John Rondo, they got you know they've got Lonzo Ball, they've got you know they got a bunch of reasonably very good players, but at the end of the day, I think LeBron's going to have to carry more of the load, and so certainly when when they won the championship with Irving and Love on Cleveland, so I, I'm going under. Uh, let's go to the next one, which is very interesting. Forty, and this is a great one. Forty-four and a half Grand Slams combined. For Federer and Nadal, 44 and a half. So just for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, they're currently sitting at 37. Roger Federer has 20. Rafa Nadal has 17. And just to remind everybody, I believe Rafa is now 32. I think he just turned 32. If Federer is not 37, he's turning 37 in the next couple of weeks. So we're talking about a 37-year-old, let's say, and a 32-year-old. Um 
I that's a tough number, seven and a half. The only reason I'm sure Matt Datz, my producer, isn't just putting it up there randomly. I it's it's almost similar to Joey Chestnut and the mustard belt. It has nothing to do with Roger Federer. Who's going to beat Rafa Nadal at the French? I mean, if Rafa Nadal chooses to play for five more years or more at the French, why can't, given his exceedance at the French, why can't he win five more French Opens? So that, it, let's imagine, I believe he's going to win in expectation three more French Opens. Let's just say three. Do I think Nadal and Federer will win four and a half or five more other majors? Wow. I'm going to go over. I'm going to go over. Uh, Matt, type on the screen, or you could whisper in my ear what you think, but I'm going over on this one. I see my colleague Eric Ortz. I don't know if you're a tennis fan. Are you a tennis fan? French, a tennis fan. All right, so maybe you guys can give me your beliefs about whether Federer and Nadal are going to go over uh, 44.5. Matt says over as well. Matt says over, and and mainly, I assume, because of the French Open. Nadal and the French. Absolutely. Um, Let's also now move on to uh, golf. Let's go on to golf, which is also one more interesting sport. Um, I want to actually, this was something that caught my eye on sports, which is obviously our first half hour, which I want to talk about. But uh, And then I want to get to a, a, the, the over-under that um, my producer, Matt Datz, gave me. The first thing was, I don't know if people recognize, but something remarkable happened in golf while I was away and not here on the show, which is Brooks Kepka repeated and won the U.S. Open for the second consecutive year. Now, you might say, how rare is that? Well, there have been... 30 chances of that since it last happened. Curtis Strange was the last person to do it in 1988 and 1989 or 89 and 90. So it hasn't happened in 30 years. Winning the U.S. Open. Remember, it's not like the Masters where it's the same course. These are two different courses where someone has now won the U.S. Open. So it's an extraordinarily rare event to win. Obviously, Tiger Woods never won consecutive U.S. Opens. I'm pretty sure Jack Nicklaus, I'm sure he did. Jack Nicklaus never won consecutive U.S. Opens. So let me just point out a little statistical shout out to Brooks Kepka for winning two consecutive U.S. Opens. Um, but the other big event in golf that has happened is the potential $10 million play or match between Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. And I have to admit, the first thing that came to my mind is... Um, they're really going to play for $10 million. So the first thing I mind is, wow, these guys are even more extraordinarily wealthy than I can. That, Of course, it makes they'll both care about the $10 million, but my guess is that's not the primary reason for them doing it. So that's the first thing I was thinking about. And the second is, who do I think would win that match? Now, what's interesting is, it depends how you want to use priors. They've played in the same round together, I think it's something like 33 times. And Tiger has had the better score 16 times, Phil 15, and tied to... So they're basically 50-50. Tiger has a much better match play record in the... In the uh, President's Cup and Ryder Cup. Tiger is phenomenal at singles play, much better than Phil Mickelson has been. I'm going when the big money's on the line. I'm taking the guy with 14 majors, 79 wins, and who the person that I, in my lifetime, I only saw the end of Jack Nicklaus's career as a little kid. 
the person I think is the greatest player to ever play, I think it's Tiger Woods. So I'm taking Tiger Woods. It's not really an over-under. And it would be interesting, I'm sure our producer Matt Datz can post this on our Twitter feed, at W Moneyball. Who do you like in the Phil Mickelson, uh, Tiger Woods, uh, different playoff? Um, In the last few minutes I have, let me just go to a few others, a couple that struck my eye on the page that Matt gave me. Um, The Lakers at 50 and a half wins. Now, it actually relates very well to something Omar Chowdhury was talking about. How many wins is a star player worth? So last year, the Lakers won 35 games. Do I think that LeBron James is worth 16 additional wins to the Lakers? Now, my normal gut reaction is no, hell no. The problem with the NBA is the regular season doesn't matter that much to that many teams. In other words, like, are the Golden State Warriors and the Houston Rockets, are they really going to try? I mean, it's not what teams try to maximize in the NBA. Do I think that the Lakers can get to 50 and a half wins? I'm going to go under, and let me say why I'm going under on that. When Matt's taking notes, we'll, we'll actually have a, we'll be able to test that prediction. I'm going under because... I don't think they're better than Cleveland's team was last year in the water down east. I think in the west, winning above 50 games is extraordinarily hard. So I'm going to go under. I'm going to go under 50 games for LeBron James. Well, that's the end of our two-hour show. Um, I would like to thank, of course, our regular guest, Rick Peterson, on our Call to the Bullpen segment. I'd like to call uh, thank Omar Chowdhury from 21st Club uh, to talk about World Cup soccer. I never thought, especially in a World Cup where the U.S. isn't in it, I never thought I'd be so excited about World Cup soccer. But I can't wait for the England-Croatia game today. I'm really excited about that. I'm obviously excited and thank my cousin Alec for calling in and Ken Fishman, wishing him luck in Event 71 in the World Series of Poker today. So between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your business, enjoy your analytics. We will see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.